John chapter number 11. John chapter 11. I'm going to be reading in verse 38, read down to verse number 30, or verse number 44 this morning. John 38 through verse 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there be an odor. For he has been dead four days, no doubt. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hand feet and bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I cannot help but read that and smile just thinking about the event that took place. Lazarus come out and there he was. (laughs) Well, it is a beautiful account. I want to look at this morning together on seeing and serving for the glory of God. Being Labor Day, it's fitting, but also this great promise that Jesus gives to Martha. Let me begin by posing a question. What is glory? What is it? Something that we as as people often chase after, we seek for in in different venues, whether it's sports or um, whether it's academic acknowledgement or achievement, whether it's Hollywood or entertainment or politics or whatever it is, we we search for glory, but what is glory? In the Old Testament, it was referred to weightiness or the weight of something as a rich man's, his treasure would be weighed out. Uh, It's kind of like, let's let's see what all of his assets and what his net worth is. In those days, it was in gold and silver and all the other things that he possessed. So glory had a reference to the richness and the influence of of a man uh, in the Old Testament culture. And we see that in the kings and their clothing, the crown, the gold that was lavished, their houses, and all that signified how worthy or how important this individual was. But what about God? Well, as it comes to God, to speak of the glory of God is to speak of His grandeur or the greatness of God displayed. It is the beauty of God being declared to us, the sum total of all of who He is. That's what the glory of God is. It's, it's a hard thing to just fix your mind on one definition, but Piper has helpfully stated it this way. It is the going public of God's holiness, which means His otherness. He goes on to say, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's perfection. See, the glory of God was 
was to see God Himself on display, His, his beauty, His character, His attributes, His, uh, his features. Not physical features, we know. It is this very thing, this desire which captured Moses in the Old Testament that we're told he endured seeing him who was invisible. You might recall in Exodus 33, 34, where Moses is really at the, the, the low part of ministry. The whole thing of delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt is unraveling before his eyes. They're committing adultery at, uh, you know, idolatry, spiritual adultery. At the very moment, God is communicating the law to them. And, and God assures Moses in that moment that he has found favor with him. Basically, I have loved you. I care for you. I've, I've given you grace, New Testament term, which prompts Moses to give that bold petition. Show me your glory. Let me see your likeness. Let me see your face. His desire was look upon the face of God. And we're reminded that heaven's sweetest promise is this, this reality that we will see him as he is. We will see him, that glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. So potent will be this experience that we will be transformed to be like him, First John 3, 2 says, because we shall see him as he is. This may in our hearts at times set this idea of viewing and seeing the glory of God in the distant future since it's, it's something that, that's ahead of us. So we just kind of do our own thing now and not worry about it until we get to heaven. Why bother yourself with seeing what you cannot see until you can see it or something like that. And then we read the words of Jesus here to Martha who is having a little trouble following Jesus' words here and his movement at the tomb. Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, troubled with what's going on, and she says to him, well, you know, he stinks by now. He's dead. It's not a good idea, Jesus. Let's not do that. I'd like to remember him as he was. And Jesus says, don't you remember verse number 40? Look at it with me. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Notice the promise he's giving to her. Not a, not a future. She will see him as he is in, in glory, which Jesus prays for. It's true at the resurrection. But something in this moment that Martha is about to experience is, is something referred to in Jesus' words as the glory of God. God is going to display himself, his attributes, something of his splendor to this group of people at this funeral in this moment. That's what he's saying to her. If you, if you believe, did not I tell you, you will see the glory of God. In fact, what John tells us in his gospel at the very beginning, they had been seeing the glory of God, albeit veiled, all throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In fact, John's gospel is all about the glory of Christ. And so we see here this promise to Martha, and I just want to just kind of muse about this with you for a moment, about seeing the glory of God as we see here in verse number 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
as a, as a promise given to those who believe that they will see him. They will see his glory uh, here to Martha. But how is it displayed? How do we see the glory of God? Well, Psalms 19 helps us a little bit. Verse number one, doesn't it? And many of you know that, especially those of you who love outdoors and and love it up here, and you take this verse to heart with you as you go hiking and climbing and all that other stuff, and that is, uh, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. In fact, what we find is, the earth is a pulpit, and creation is preaching one sermon in a universal language. That is the glory of God. Its whole message is how magnificent and glorious Our God is that created all that there is. In fact, what we see is His wisdom and His power and His goodness, His eternality, His sovereignty. And we could go on and on as declared continually day and night about God through creation. In fact, His beauty, God's beauty, is captured in and proclaimed by the beauty of what you see when you go outside. Do you believe that? We see the glory of God on display. God is, God is placed it in creation, creation reveling and declaring the glory of God for us. But more specifically here in the text uh, and in the New Testament, we see, we see the glory of God being manifested in Jesus Christ. The concentrated, the clearest, the, the most precise declaration and, and vision of the glory of God is found in Jesus Christ. Christ. That's what John was saying in John chapter 1, verse number 14. And the glory of God. In fact, what Jesus is referring to here in this miracle, which was about to take place, was declaring not just that, that uh, God was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but this miracle was pointing to the fact that, that Jesus was unique. He was God's true and only begotten Son. That he had come from the Father and God is with him, has sent him into the world. And he is God's chosen chosen shepherd and chosen servant. The, the, the miracles that Jesus performed, the messages that he gave was all a, a declaration of the glory of God. And that glory being concentrated on the person of Jesus himself. Jesus is the full view for us of the glory of God but how do we see that now we're not back in Jesus's day he's not walking among us in sandals and dirt we have automobiles and a lot nicer things like ceiling fans and air conditioners in your car how do you see the glory of God now is he still revealing himself and I would say yes absolutely through the word of God through the word of God Jesus is the whole subject of our Bible. 66 books, all of it pointing back to this glorious person, this glorious figure, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of everything we hold dear. Our hope, our salvation, future, the promises that God has given us is all secured for us by Jesus Christ. They all point to Jesus. You can't have Christianity without Christ. You can't have the Bible and not truly understand it for any glimpse of what it truly is without understanding it through the lens of who Jesus is. In fact, Paul, speaking of the Jews in his day, says, as they read the law, they do so with a veil over their face. And they're not able to see. Why? Because the veil is only lifted as they turn to Jesus Christ. 
He is the very key to the word of God. And consider for a moment the great promises you hold dear. Whether it's the forgiveness of your sin or heaven or eternity or, or, or streets of gold or mansions or whatever it is that comforts you and encourages you in this life. And ask yourself, why does this comfort me so much? Why does it help me? Why does it, it, it encourage me so much? Well, you could answer, because it's true, because it's sure. Because God is promised and God doesn't lie. Well, that would be true, wouldn't it? Don't you believe that? I mean, you believe that God doesn't lie. It's the Bible says, and so the promises of God are dear to me because they're sure, and, and, and God doesn't lie, and God is actively acting upon those promises, carrying out those things for our benefit. Well, I would add to that that God is actively acting upon them according to them because the grace extended to us and purchased for us by Jesus Christ. Every ounce of saving, redemptive, keeping, persevering, glory, grace-giving work that God does in a person's life is all funneled through the person of Jesus Christ. He has purchased it all by His life, by His blood that's been spilled out by by Himself. He is the, the security for us in every way. And so we may revel in the promises of God and the comforts that He gives us. We revel in those things because of the, the Savior God and the, the person of Christ. He has purchased them all for us. We see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We see it most clearly through the Word of God. And let me just say this. Sometimes, I think, is the case, our exposure to the glory of Christ may be hindered in our lives primarily and mostly because of our lack of exposure to God's Word. Because of our lack of digging in, opening the book, and finding out for ourselves. I'm saying in another way, we, we really have as much of Him as we want to in this regard. You see as much of the glory of Christ and the Word of God as you want. It's your book given to you. And dear friends, I would just encourage you, as I encourage my own heart, uh, dig in and get to know Him better through that. But secondly, not only through the Word of God, we see the glory of Christ through experience. This may make some of us nervous. In fact, uh, in our men's Bible study, we're, we were looking at a Puritan. Doug was teaching us through one of the Puritans. They talk about experiential. That's a fun word. Uh, experiential. It just means your experience. Faith is not meant to just be precepts and statement of facts. Do you know that? Christianity is those things. It has those things. But Christianity is a faith that, that's meant to be put into practice, experienced in our life. It isn't just enough to know Jesus is the Son of God and that He is sent into the world. But, but have you experienced the, the saving, redeeming of work of Jesus Christ in your own life? There's a lot of people that are on their way to hell this very moment, and maybe even in this room, this very moment with a, a good, workable knowledge of the gospel. They've just not responded to it. They've never experienced the power of the gospel in their own life. And that's a probing question. God even asked the churches in the New Testament through Peter and through Paul as we were make our calling election sure or make sure we're part of the household of faith. Have you experienced His grace in your own life? His transforming work in us. Grace is subtle, 
I know, and even though it's subtle, in the sense we don't grow a new arm as soon as you come to Christ, or a new head, or a new something, you, you still got the same instruments in that way, it is not imperceptive. God's redeeming work in our life may be slow and progressive in some ways, but, but the change of our directions and the change of our desires testify that His powerful work has taken effect in us. What I'm saying is we see the glory of Christ not only through the Word of God, but as we experience the Word of God in working on our lives, in our lives, by changing and transforming us. Let me just... <clears throat> press here just for a moment that if you know the gospel and yet the gospel has never taken root in your heart if you've you've kind of assented to the knowledge of all the facts about Christianity yet you have never truly followed Christ it should give you cause to take wonder have I truly trusted Christ as my savior Or have I thought of the Christian tradition and the Christian religion as as sort of like mathematical equations? It's great for people who's engineers who have to deal with that stuff and build bridges. We like that. But as far as normal people, we'll never use that again. But I agree with them because you can't argue with the law of math, I guess, if you know those sort of things. Friends, Christianity isn't meant to be that way. It's meant to be lived out and experienced. Christ moving in your heart? Has has your direction changed? Have you followed Him? Do you have a love for God now where where a a disdain for God and a fear of God once existed? Do you have a love for the brethren or the sisters in Christ? Do you have a love for the people of God? Now, we don't have those to the degree we want those, but there is the evidence of God's saving work in our life. It's not just in redeeming us, but it's also in that progress which... God does in our life that sanctification that he is changing us little by little extensively that progress of his work in us and I'm just trying to tell you this morning that that we see God we rejoice and we glory in a God who is at work in us and many of you have been saved for a long time know that don't you I mean, you don't wake up in the morning and say boy look how I've just made myself a good person, didn't I? How many of you said that this morning? You got up and you, you, you fixed your coffee or orange juice or whatever you had and you're half and half and you said, I'm just really a good person. I'm glad I turned out the way I wanted to turn out. That would be like Lazarus coming out of the grave. I'm glad I made myself alive before Jesus come along. I was very alive before Jesus said, come out of this tomb. Do you think, just to be honest, do you think Lazarus would have said that? Come on now. Absolutely not. And isn't that our testimony? All the glory of God displayed as he works in our lives, as he he opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ, and as we experience walking with him daily, fellowship with God. But also, I would say we see the glory of God through the salvation and sanctification of others. I think this is crucial, one of the most blessed gifts God gives his people. We possess as a church, and that's seeing God work in the lives of other people. You know, sometimes we don't perceive it in our own lives. We're in seasons where it feels like, does God even know my name anymore? How many of you ever been there? Say amen if you've been there. You feel like that. And as you see God working graciously in the lives of others, isn't it encouraging? 
Does it not strengthen you in your faith to know that God is still faithful and working and doing a, a great thing in our day? But it's more than just the fact of, of being reminded of his faithfulness in your own life. That would be a selfish motivation if that was the only thing. There is something about rejoicing in the fact that the name of Christ is, is being expanded and exalted across the world. How many of you hearing Christ's name blaspheme? How many of you groan at that? Just crawl up one side of you and down the other. And you want to rebuke sharply. Maybe you have done that. Those who are doing that. And be appropriate to do that. We're bothered by it. How much more are we excited and do we rejoice in the spread of the glory of God through the redemptive work of Christ and the expansion of the gospel ministry? We rejoice to see God's name spread throughout the earth, the glory of God known through the face of Jesus Christ. You recall Habakkuk's words in Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a day that will be. The whole world will know the glory of Christ. And you know what we're leading up to that day now as we see the gospel spreading forward. I think Paul rejoiced in this as he thought, 1 Timothy 2.8, in every place that men should be pray, or that men should pray and lift up holy hands without anger and quarreling. I know there's a lot to that verse, but there's something of a, of a godly desire in seeing the glory of God spread in that as well. In every place where pagan altars were once erected and dominant in every place where superstitions and witchcraft enslaved men, where societies and cultures were submerged in darkness and controlled by a lie, let Christ be named there, let Christ be exalted there, let Christ be sought there. Let the glory of God deliver and redeem and bring fruit, and that should excite us, church. That should excite us. Like good tidings from a foreign country, so we long to... To hear and see the progress of Christ work. And it is a reminder of him being gloriously sovereign over the nations. We'll see that in the next section of John 11. Now this is true of foreign missions. In many places Christ is working. But I want to add this is also a platform for the church itself. That's what we see here day in and day out as we, as we live lives together in fellowship and community. It is a platform to see the grace of God and the glory of God and, and the truthfulness of God being displayed and lived out and worked in other people's lives. Sometimes in bold ways and other times in subtle ways, still powerfully in sustaining the lives of the saints. Saving and growing, persevering, healing, encouraging, and faithfulness and giving, and a number of other ways God shows himself to us and through us. What a joy that is for us. Have you seen the glory of God? Have you seen him in the life of Jesus? Have you seen Christ gloriously shown to us through the word of God? And have you experienced that glory in your own life and the transformation of being saved, being brought from dead to life? Have you seen the glory of God in others? Have you slowed down enough and, and, and quit the occupation, being occupied with your own life enough to see the glory of God being manifested and worked out in the lives of others? Oh, if you miss that, how, what joy we miss as a church, seeing the glory of God. If we're to look for it, I think. We're to pray for it. We're to seek it. 
for ourselves and for others. I want to notice a second thing here, not only seeing, but there's something else being noted, highlighted at the end of verse number 44, and that is serving. Seeing and serving. Let me read it for you. Verse 43, verse 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him let him go. Now, those of you who have done Bible studies on this section know that they buried Lazarus in a customary fashion in those days, the same way Jesus, our Savior, was wrapped up when he was buried. They would bind his ankles with a cloth, and his arms would be tied to his body to keep you know all that stuff together. Then they would take a larger cloth, and they would wrap his body up in that larger cloth, and then they would take a separate cloth, And they would wrap his head up in that, a napkin, as some translations has referred to it. And and in that wrapping and folding, they would put spices and incense and all those things to mask the the smell of the decay. Well, that's what happened with Jesus. That's naturally what happened here with Lazarus. Jesus commands Lazarus to come out, doesn't he? And you've got to have an imagination. How did he get out? Did he hop out? Was he, was he like, we were talking about doing a fall day here at, in October, and I was like, we could have a sack race, maybe, maybe like Lazarus. We'll call that Lazarus race. That's what we'll have, and that day we'll have a Lazarus race. How did he get out there? Others suggest this was a miracle. Maybe he just kind of gravity, just kind of slid out, you know, just sort of at the gravitational pull of Jesus' voice, Lazarus came out. Well, just as interesting as that is, <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that, but nevertheless, <laughs> you know, Jesus could have had him like, like evaporate through the cloth and then reappear. And then he, then he would be like ready to go, ready for action. Isn't it interesting that he came out cloth, uh, wrapped up and bound hand and foot. And there he is standing for them in front of the tomb. And, and I guess if you was there, you would have been, you would have been the second person Jesus brought from the dead because you'd have had a heart attack. I don't know if you can have a heart attack in Jesus' presence, but it feels like that would be the case. Yet here he was, standing in front of them, wrapped up, bound up, alive. Notice the end of verse number 44, unbind him and let him go, Jesus says to them. Without a doubt, the miracle Jesus performed gave him life. They were all gazing, wrapped up in this figure. They They were... uh, they were kind of amazed at what was going on. And Jesus says, quit gawking at what's going on here and get to work. That's basically what he says in uh, the New English. Um, never mind. Some other translation. Now he's speaking maybe to the mourners. Maybe he's speaking to his disciples. Maybe he's speaking to, to the sisters. I, I'm not sure. Some people speculate why he did it the way he did. Maybe because they had this aversion of touching dead bodies, which... I don't blame him. And he wanted them to see at every wrap, be amazed and think about what are they going to find when they open this guy up and see what they were going to see. I think that may be the case. It is a good picture of our own discipleship, however, though. God makes alive, and yet he calls others to come in service to help us live a free life from the bondage of the sinful nature that we once lived in and were held by. We don't live this Christian life by ourselves. 
We need the involvement and interaction with one another. He calls them to come along and help him, aid him. The same thing he does to to the young woman that he raised from the dead when he tells the parents after she's made alive. He says, go get her something to eat. What are you doing? Standing here waiting. She's alive. Go get her some food and take care of this thing. And so likewise, we are called to ministry of one another. There's something beautiful about this, however, and that is that, that not only is he calling in the ministry of one another, he's calling us to be involved in what he's doing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has a call in your life to be a part of what he's doing in the world? What he's doing as far as ex- in the expansion of the gospel ministry and the exaltation of Christ among the nations? inviting us in did he need to no he didn't need to do that and yet he chooses to out of his his grace and his goodness to put gawking to good use and to work we saw this earlier in in john chapter number four once you turn back with me john chapter number four his disciples to go off to get bread and while they're gone jesus starts a revival in samaria and uh, they come back and they're like, what in the world? What's going on here? And nothing like Jesus turning your day upside down. John chapter 4, verse 38. Let me go back. Uh, verse number 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Uh, this is a way of saying I, I, I'm, I am strengthened. And the act of obedience to my Father's will. God has strengthened me. This is what I live for and this is what I live off of. My food is do the will of Him who sent me in the, to accomplish His work. Don't say that there's four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are wide for harvest. Already the one reaps is receiving wages and gathered fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And that first part of that verse number 38, I think, stands clearly all throughout the disciples' ministry. He called them to be with him, to have fellowship and communion with him. He was training them. He was preparing them for future ministry. But he called them in that fellowship to serve and minister with him. And so here in Samaria, and he's looking, you're joining in to somebody else's labor. When the feeding of the 5,000, he sends his disciples out to feed the people. Why? Did he need to do that? No, he didn't need to do that. Anybody who can take that little bit of food and feed 5,000, 10,000, 15, doesn't need you and me. Do you agree with that? Oh, but what joy that he invites us in to join in his work and be a part of what he's doing. Life by the power of Christ, John 11, and practical service by the people who looked on. You and I are called more than to just gaze and look at the glory of God. It is in that seeing the glory of God, we're called to go out and to glorify God and show the glory of God to others and minister to encourage one another. You can't give life, but you can unbind and you can set free. In fact, we're commanded to do so. By all the commands of one another in the New Testament is a command to go out and serve and care and minister to one another. 
Not only that, our glorious privilege now, as we were once servants of sin and of Satan, now we're called servants of righteousness, Romans 6, 18. And that is a servant of God for his glory. Now, I'd like to share with you just a few practical implications this morning as we kind of sum this thought up, not only seeing the glory of God, but serving for the glory of God. We see this going on in two arenas. The first is uh, in the world at large, around the world. We see God's ministry, we see his work going to the ends of the earth. So it's, it's a ministry at large. But I want to say secondly, that is, we see this going on here locally. Both are significant. Both are a part of what God has called us to do. Our church, ABC, should be engaged in both. Waiting and serving and giving and discipling towards both as much as possible. And I think we try our best to accomplish that through missions and through the ministry we have here locally and the ministry center and to one another. So I want to give you a few ways I think this might be helpful or just a few things, a few principles that... Uh, practical implications that may be helpful for you. If you want to do this, and we want to live this out, then first of all, you're going to have to be present. You can't serve in absence. There's an absentee serving. There's none of that going on here. You cannot serve in any place, in any capacity, hardly at all, being absent or unengaged. Now, The Bible reminds us and commands us to join ourselves together for mutual edification. You find that in Hebrews, don't you? That is what the Bible says, especially in the day in which we live in. We are to join ourselves together. We're to be present. And I think there's a lost virtue of that in our society today. And and our generation and the younger generation You can take this wherever it hits you and how it hits you, but there's a lost virtue, and that is that virtue of being there, of showing up. Uh, In a conversation this week, I was reminded of this, and and just my mom's example to this growing up, started going to church. Uh, I went on a church bus. Uh, As a little kid, the church bus come around, picked us up. Finally, then decided to invite my mom to a revival, and ever since they invited her, I was drugged to church any time the door was open. How many of you have been there like that? The lament, right? I, I get it. Couldn't wear T-shirts and all that stuff like that. You may say that, well, that's not profound. But you don't know the impact that has had on my own life, my own example, when the Lord started dealing with me and bringing me to himself. That, that example, that setting forth of the reality, not of profound things that we might go, there's room for that, but that, that, that example of just simply being faithful and being present. The impact that it has on my life, the impact that it has on your family's life, this in and out and all this other stuff, is, it, it, it sets a, a, a distorted view of what God is calling us to do in our engagement in serving. We, we have to be present if we're going to be there. If we're going to serve one another, we have to be present. Now, you can witness this same thing, but I think of the, uh, I think of the subtle... 
encouragement this offers to each of us, not just me and the impact on my life or the impact on your kids' lives, but your perseverance and your faithful plotting and God working in your life and the week in and week out, little by little, precept upon precept, trust. And as people see your life and, and see you there, that, that in itself is a ministry to one another, not just a ministry to your leaders and your pastor, although it is. Uh, we cannot, not only our own spiritual well-being, but the spiritual well-being of others, we cannot serve or be present to serve if we're not present at all. The second thing I would say to that, not only is the act of being present, you have to participate. You have to find ways of getting involved. Now, we are not all gifted the same. We don't all serve in the same capacity. But that universal principle applies to all of us. God has gifted us, given us the Holy Spirit, and, and equipped all of us to serve in some fashion or other, to benefit and strengthen and and help the body of Christ and the mission of Christ go forward. And you believe that. And some of you don't, because I mean, like five of you believe that. The rest of you will have altar call in a moment, I guess. Do you believe that? God has gifted us all to glorify Him and to help the body of Christ. He does that globally. There is that, that broader... Uh, that broader word, but I'm speaking primarily here of the, the, the ministry locally and what God is doing in the local church. And those of you visiting with us, what God is doing in your local church where God has placed you and, and, and caused you to be a part of. Sometimes I think we forget that point. We can be present but not participate. Always on the sidelines, gazing. We need to be reminded of Christ calling us to get involved and, and there are many ways you can do that. One, I, particularly uh, of utmost importance, you can, be, you can participate by growing in Christ yourself. By growing in Christ yourself. Your own spiritual growth is an encouragement to help others in worship. The way we pray for one another and pray with one another. The, the acts of hospitality, the practical needs uh, 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 that are that are being met, the word of encouragement, teaching children and keeping the nursery. There's hundreds of ways to serve. And I think much like seeing the glory of Christ, we have as much of that as we want as we look into his word or neglect his word, so as it is serving in the body of Christ. You can be just as involved and engaged as you want to be, but you have to participate. Third thing I would say is praise. Now, what do you mean? Well, I mean, we praise each other, right? That's what I'm talking about. No, it's not. The aim of all of our service and the glory goes to God, isn't it? As we serve Him and as we see Him working among us and through us, we give Him the glory. What a joy it is to be used by God. What a joy to serve Him and, and for Him to use such clay vessels as we are. And, and it's exciting. It's it, it, it is something that leads us to that final end of not just serving, but serving with a heart of praise to God and thanksgiving. That's our motivation. We praise Him. Paul said we're so consumed by this that our, our eating and drinking, our, our exercise, everything that consists of our life is done to this great end, that we do it to the glory of God. Let your life glorify God and revel in His glory 
and display that glory to others. You know, our lives is a service of a Thanksgiving offering. And that all the good that comes from it ultimately ends back with the glory of God. Doesn't it? I think heaven's going to reveal that when we get to heaven and he unveils all the ways he worked in us and through us that we, we may not even perceive. And yet he'll say, for my glory, for my glory. And you know what we're going to do at that point? You're going to glorify God. Rejoice and worship and offer thanks and adoration. Don't wait till you get to heaven to do that. We do that now. And we're going to serve him. Uh, we want to serve him in a way that glorifies him, that points to him in the end. The last thing I'll mention, the fourth thing. Not only do we need to be present, participate, and praise, we need to be reminded of the promise. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. You know, today is Labor Day weekend celebration. How many of you can raise your hand and say, I know what that means? I know what Labor Day holiday is about. Seven or eight of you. I had to look it up, just to be honest with you. It's a holiday, and I never did get Labor Day because I always thought it's Labor Day. You're celebrating work and go to work. Well, I take a good Monday off of work and, and go get something done, but hamburgers must be cooked. So nevertheless, we, we press on. It is a holiday set aside to celebrate the social achievements of the American workforce. 1881, uh, one of the labor unions in New York started this day. We should celebrate the union workforce, and so they took a day off. By two or three years, it became, um, it became a state national holiday. Let's celebrate all the workers in America. It's good. I think we should celebrate and take a day off in our achievements. But I would tell you, there's a great day of celebration that awaits us. There's a moment when all of our labors that we have labored, those things that people have seen and those things that people have not seen, the glass of cold water in the name of Christ to the martyr who gave his life, there's a day in which Jesus will hand out accommodations and paychecks. Now, you may not like that language, but that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Our, our works will be tried by fire. And there's a day when we will, we will see with our own eyes that great promise that God has given to this church in Corinth. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because it's futile? Because it may do something in the end? No. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you believe that? Oh, that we would be a church that, that longs to see the glory of God. We live for that. We, we dig in the word for that. We see it in our own lives as he is conforming us to the image of Christ. We see it in the lives of others. We want to see the glory of God. And through that vision, it may charge us and remind us to serve in the power and the strength that he provides, knowing that nothing we do for the glory of God and in his name will be lost. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for the love that you have shown us in, in giving us your only begotten Son. Lord, I do pray this morning if there are some here this, this Lord's Day that do not know you. They, they have a, a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They know the, the truths. They know the statements, but they have, they have not received the, the, the impact or... 
have they felt the influence on their own life? I pray even now that they would turn to Christ. You said they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And even through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, give them that courage. Let them be obedient to that and experience the forgiveness of sin today. Father, I pray for all of us, those who labor hard week in and week out for your glory. Strengthen them, remind them that no efforts spent in the name of Christ for the cause of Christ go unnoticed by you. And Lord, I pray that all of us be living in a way that magnifies your glory and that is joined with your work in Jesus' name. Amen.